Five, four, three, two, one. Bazinga. Bazinga. Hello and welcome back to the Now Showing podcast. I'm your always handsome host, Sam Houston. I'm joined by the gremlin of the, that we call Jordan Lee McDonald. I had a completely unnecessarily mean from me there. <laughs> I've never seen gremlins, so I mean, you, I, I wouldn't necessarily have known you know, what they look like. Out. I was going to be self-deprecative and then compliment you, but for some reason at the last moment, just changed my mind and just went absolutely hog Go wild. back to your true nature, that's what it is. How are you doing today? I am doing pretty good. How are you doing? Well, as you uh, off the show have heard, I'm not doing a great mood because of the hours I've spent on the phone to the Virgin Media employees trying to get my phone sorted uh, and constantly be given, wait a second, can you repeat your address again? Can you repeat your card number again? Can you repeat your address again? And then the gym had the gym fucked up my membership. I've got to get a new membership with the gym. So I'm a little bit um, high. I'm a little bit, you know, pissed off a little bit uh highly strung a bit like i'm just one one bad word from you jay i might just explode and expose you on the podcast uh we got some good news though we got some good news uh we are now part of a yes. podcasting network yes which is so exciting we, we are part we are proud to be part of music city drive-ins network um and therefore you know it's uh we're going to be on their website and uh, hopefully uh maybe in the future collaborating with some of their uh some of their other podcasts there's a lot of film podcasts on there um i'm not going from all but there's a there's a, there's a few uh, there's a it's called call me by your commentary call me by your commentary and there's a candid cinema podcast there's the matt and music city driving podcast itself uh there is a film optic podcast and there's also a lot of podcasts uh, more to do with music there's a 50s music and a radio radio podcast. I got sports ones in there, which is obviously interesting for uh, for us too as, as sports fans. But I think it's a bit more of the American type, which is more my, my kind of thing. But um, yeah, so we're very proud to, to be part of, uh, of that and um, exciting times for the podcast. I guess we, we, we're going first. And also, I'll mention at the start of the podcast because it is worth mentioning. We also have a Twitter account now, so um, I strongly urge all listeners that are not currently following to follow the uh, at now showing film. On, uh, on Twitter, uh, we'll both be on there and uh, and hopefully tweeting a bit about film as well as obviously advertising the podcast. And um, and yeah, I've been uh, been on there making uh, this week and hopefully tweeting out whenever there's like new trailers and shit. So yeah, give that a, a follow. Um, give us a five star on uh, on iTunes as well. And if of you course, give us a five star on iTunes. iTunes. And uh, so today, what are we looking at, JL? We are looking at uh, two films, two new films. Uh, it's been so. It's been just over a week since we last recorded. So the, one of the films is a bit older. Uh, we're looking at Kajillionaire, and we're also going to be looking at the new Netflix uh, original, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Um, so yeah, two exciting films to be talking about. Two very different films in in some ways, and two very similar films, I guess, in terms of like crime and and so on. So uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good link. I was trying to think about how to link those. And I guess yeah, crime is uh, a constant between the two. But um, before we get on to that, Jail, uh, we're going to start in our usual spot, and we're going to talk about the films we've seen this week. Uh, and I'll start us off because uh, I normally start off with you. So I'll start with me. I, I, uh, I saw a few films uh, in the week in a bit because, um, as I previously mentioned, I went home for the for the week, so I've been uh, not in uh, my usual uni spot. And on the train back to uh, to, to Ely, I um, I watched the uh, entirety of Being John Malkovich. 
Um, one a film written by one of your favourite writers was that would that be a, a true statement, Charlie Kaufman? Yeah, for sure, for sure, and also one we've talked about before on the podcast. Uh, of course, a, a yeah, classic we did, uh, show me. We did do. Uh, I'm thinking of ending things, and um, and being John Malkovich was um, kind of everything I hoped it was going to be. Really, um, I, I thought it was a, a very very entertaining film, and and certainly um, a good mixture of uh, very cerebral. You know, like it obviously had a lot of underlying messages. Um, but obviously also one that could be enjoyed um, more in a comedy sense on, on surface level. And um, I can't remember who uh, said it. it was, I think it was somebody I review on Letterboxd um, reviewed it as saying it's the um, the best film I've ever seen in which I hate every single one of the characters. And um, I think that's very true. Like everybody is unlikable in that film. Uh, the main character cheats on his bird. Uh, the, his bird goes absolutely insane halfway through. Um, the the girl they're they're pining for I forget her name at this point, but uh, she's also probably one of the most hateable bitchy characters I've ever seen. I guess the only person you really do feel true empathy for is John Malkovich. Um, but I think the uh, the concept of it actually being about him and he's the same person he's in real life, and I just think it's a it's a cracking concept and um, you know very much. Um, obviously part of what people think of when they think of Charlie Kaufman is this eccentric, um, imaginative filmmaker. And um, it, I haven't gone as far to, I've seen obviously see I'm thinking of any things, but I haven't gone as far to watch uh, Adaptation or, or um, an, a, what's it called? Um, the the casting one? Oh, Anomalisa. Anomalisa. I haven't watched those or uh, uh, Syndicate New York. Uh, which I know is one of your favourite films. So I need to go watch those because I was a big fan of that. Uh, other than that, the another film that I, I watched uh, that I'd also put in the in the um, category of, of cerebral and and a bit of a thinky film uh, was uh, you you and you're never you were never really here. You're never really here. Is that what oh yeah, you're never really here. Yeah, you were never really here. Starring uh, Joaquin Phoenix, um, which was again uh, similarly very good. Um, I actually would say. The, the amount of hype and, and, and press I think I heard about the film means that I probably thought it was going to be a little bit more uh, breathtaking than it was. I thought sometimes the uh, the character decisions were a little bit random and I thought that um, I was a little bit confused, not not plot-wise, but I was confused at motivations at points and I felt that the film maybe um, could have benefited from a bit longer uh, screen time. I thought that a few things flashed by, but I thought despite that criticism, I thought it was, uh, it was pretty damn good. Uh, one of the the uh, another standout performance from Mikey Phoenix, and um, certainly one that uh, made you feel a lot for the uh, the main character and and um, sympathising a lot, and uh, yeah, a very very good picture, and I would recommend it. And um, yeah, that's that's the, the 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 two big ones I watched. I also mentioned that the other day I um going back to the very first episode of the National Podcast uh, in its current form. I um I rewatched Blade Runner the other day, and I watched the theatrical version with uh, with the narration and uh, without the uh, the unicorn dream, and it really can't be overstated how much better it is uh, in its final cut version. I mean, take away the um, additional effects and stuff that that aren't there with the director's cut. I'm sure the director's cut will be just as good, but um, just when it comes to um, kind of thematically and and kind of feel like not having that that narration gives it so much more um interpretation uh for the for the viewer and it, it kind of cuts through tension there's like long shots that, that in the felt final cut um don't feel so empty or or, or impressive or, or sizable when you're paying attention to Harrison Ford going well 
I was a paid killer in those days and it just kind of going out over and it also has a really, really cheesy ending. So I think if anything, <laughs> I um I appreciate Blade Runner more because of watching the theatrical version. It's obviously one of my favorite films already, I've made that clear, but I think my appreciation for the original it goes up when you see how such a clear uh, had such a, a a small thing on the surface has such a clear impact on the uh, the, the technical standards of a film. Yeah, very much more like adding to that noir feel, I guess, with the narration there, like the kind of sort of classic detective almost suit, like it would approach. Have black and white better than the final cut would have. Well, so, so, so it would have been in black and white, you think? Yeah, yeah, because that that like that old yeah. detective cigar out of his mouth. Yeah, oh, I mean, I think there's a re. I think there's a reason why the so my cinema is bringing that back uh, the Blade Runner the original. Uh, I think in about I think it's on Friday actually I'm not too sure but it's uh, coming up pretty soon and uh, I think there's a reason very much clear why they have decided to go with the final cut and not the uh, theatrical cut. Mm-hmm. As you yeah, say, definitely, definitely. So what have you been watching this week, Jail? Uh, I've been watching a lot of stuff as usual. Uh, some stuff I can't talk about because we're reserving it for next week's podcast because they are not out in the UK yet. I managed to see them. Um, nice little perk of having my limitless membership is that I get some premiere screenings every now and again. So those two films I saw premieres over the past uh, couple of days. I've seen Pixie, a um, Irish indie film, and also The Climb, um, which is a interesting film i'm sure we'll talk about it next week i'm not sure if you're going to, be able to watch that one or not but um even if you don't i'll, I'll definitely talk about it directorial debut based on a short of the same name um and that'll be one to look forward to next week um in terms of this week what i actually want to talk about um one big film i want to talk about was the uh, bfi london film festival uh closing film uh from this year it was ammonite um which was a very interesting film has drawn a lot of comparisons um, to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which came out last year uh, by Celine Sciamma, uh, who I've actually seen one of her films fairly recently, a couple of months back now, which was Tomboy, which I really, really liked. And I've heard very good things about Portrait, and it's drawn very much comparisons in terms of style and theme and character um, because of the uh, lesbian protagonists and uh, its focus on their relationship. Um, and a lot of people have been saying this film isn't as good as Portrait. Um, I'm quite lucky, I guess, in that regard that I've not seen Portrait yet, so I'm kind of not judging it against something else, especially because it's so recent. I feel like it's probably playing into a lot of people's thoughts on this film. Um, but it was actually a really interesting film, um, directed by Francis Lee, who also directed God's Own Country, which I've not seen yet, but also heard very good films about, uh, good things about. Uh, and so this film is set in 1840s England, uh, it follows paleontologist Mary Anning, who I actually never heard of before, and I was kind of halfway through thought, hang on, this is based on a real person. <laughs> I didn't realise, I, I didn't read anything going into it. Um, all I knew about was the fact that it was about like a lesbian relationship. Um, that's the only thing I knew. So, yeah, I was very, um, kind of going very blind and didn't know very much about the, the characters of the story. And it was very much um, a love story rather than a, um, rather than a biopic. Uh, it was very much focused on relationships between characters rather than maybe their achievements, um, which was quite interesting, uh, especially from, there's been a lot of, some, some talk as well I've heard about the fact that it's um, directed by a man, which is interesting, especially given some of the intimate scenes, I won't go into too much detail in case you want to watch it yourself, but there's a lot of uh, increasingly intense love scenes, I shall say, uh, between Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan. Um, oh, so sick. 
and yeah, so there's been a bit of, I wouldn't say debate or sort of criticism, I think it's more just reconsideration of those scenes in light of the fact that it's directed by a man, um, you know, from the male perspective rather than the female perspective. Uh, are those scenes true to life? Are those scenes genuine or authentic or, or what? But I, what I will say is we've been talking a lot on the podcast recently about uh, Oscar Oscar potential, whether the Oscars uh, still go ahead as planned or, or what I'm assuming they're going to. Obviously, they've announced that they've been delayed. But, um, yeah, until April, isn't it? Yeah, but if they, if they do go ahead, one thing I'm for sure I can say is that Kate Winslet, um, for me, is the dead cert for, Oscar, for, the, for leading actress uh, nomination. If she's not nominated for this film, I will be very, very surprised. Um, this is very much a film uh, which is based on uh, show, don't tell. Sometimes it's a bit too much show, <laughs> is one thing I will say. Um, but um, yeah, it's very much a physical and emotional performance. Um, lots of silence. Uh, there's not much dialogue in the first 20, 30 minutes. Very much... Um, about facial expression and posture and gesture and uh, just sort of glances between characters and so on. So very much a physical performance and one I would definitely recommend you get around to watching if you get the opportunity to see it. Um, I was quite lucky to see it at the cinema. Um, hopefully uh, you can see it as well. Um, but yeah, one to, one to watch for sure. And in terms of Saoirse Ronan, she's been a, a bit of mixed reactions in terms of her performance. I think she was exceptional, though. Uh, some people are saying that she didn't really portray the character um in a in a genuine way but i think she was very good as well uh, obviously my love for little women as well maybe coming to that but i think it's nice as well because in this film i've heard of that one <laughs> i think in this film it's quite interesting though because she's generally played these sort of strong women like in little women and uh ladybird and so on and in this film she's very much the opposite very vulnerable um very timid at times at the beginning very um dependent at, at times so yeah very different performance of her which is why which is what i liked quite a lot about it um yeah mm. and then i did finish bly manor haunting of bly manor which is the netflix the hill house follow-up um very briefly i'll just say i enjoyed it i thought it was good but um they definitely um it's not really a spoiler in the last episode one of the characters says this is about a love story not a ghost story and that's very much true throughout it's not as scary as hill house so if you were jumping a lot at Hill House and finding it very spooky, it's not as much of a horror as as a, as a tragic or um, like a tragedy and a romance story and, and so on. There obviously are horror elements in it and it's ghosts and whatnot, but it's not as scary as Hill House. But I'd probably say I prefer Hill House overall for that reason. Um, but yeah. I, I will say, um, first thing, apologise to the, the audience and, and I guess JL and Post because I had a lot of mic trouble. So if my mic volume is going up and down, that, that'll be why. But um, I also say that uh, a lot of things come out on Netflix all the time. A lot of films come out. Uh, a lot of TV shows come out. And, and you know, when, when it comes to, to films, you know, I, I think of, of the, the contrast between something like Project Power, which was the Project Power was advertised very heavily. Um, and so was the old guard. I saw them on TV a lot, but didn't. No one talked about them. They weren't particularly big films. Whereas compare that to something more like Bird Box or something, where that that got like worldwide known. And when it comes mm-hmm. to TV, something like Tiger, uh, King. Tiger King. Yeah, I was about to say Tiger King, where like everybody knew it. It certainly feels like, especially compared to a lot of the things we talked about on Netflix. Um, even comparing it to the the other program we talked about last week, uh, the, the World Beyond, it seems like the the Haunting of Blind Manor has very much captured the zeitgeist. And um, 
a lot of people I know that aren't particularly filmy or aren't particularly TV, you know, into into TV shows to, to the degree that we are, um, have been asking me, you know, oh, you do that film podcast? Have you seen Haunting of Blind Manor? And oh, have you heard about that new Netflix thing? And it seems like it's quite, um, it's done, it's done well, I guess, off, off the back of the uh, popularity of, of Hill House. It, it certainly has, uh, has been one of the the biggest things on Netflix uh, for the last few weeks, which is, uh, you know, of note, I guess. Yeah, for sure, and it's also prompted me. I didn't even realize. I don't think until I saw um, Blind Man and was looking through Letterbox and IMDb and so on. Is that uh, Mike Flanagan, who directed Hill House and Blind Manor, is also the director of Doctor Sleep? So oh, I really? definitely need to get around to watching that. Obviously, obviously, we did the Shining episode mm-hmm. on uh, on the podcast. I'm gonna get around to watching Doctor Sleep now because uh, yeah, I think he's a really good horror director, and he does this really good balance between horror elements and also like the character development and uh, and just interesting character arcs and, and romance and, and whatnot, as I mentioned. So, yeah, he's definitely uh, a really good horror director. He's done a bunch of horror, or smaller films, but Doctor Sleep, obviously, one of the one of the bigger ones, more well-known ones. Yeah, and, um, and that's basically what we've watched over the last uh, week or so. Um but so we're going to move on to our kind of slightly more new and, and streamlined news section of it, anything worthwhile talking about. Uh, and I'm going to talk about, um, which isn't a surprise for anyone in the podcast, I'm going to talk about some superhero news. Um, and probably you can guess what I'm going to talk about because it's been pretty well documented and we've pretty highly talked about it over the last few weeks. Um, oh, is this, uh, is this the fact that Jared Leto has been uh, reprising his book for Joker <laughs> in Jack Black Snyder's Justice League? That is not the news. That is worth the news. Jared Leto is apparently supposed to be in Justice League. However, I'm sure you can expect what I'm going to say. Um, there has been an awful lot of rumours over the last few weeks, and it's no nothing confirmed yet um, that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are going to be reprising their roles as Peter Parker and Peter Parker, respectively, in the upcoming <laughs> film Spider-Man 3, starring Tom Holland as Peter Parker. Um, and what this means for the MCU, what this means for Sony as well, what this means for Spider-Man, um, it's pretty big news, man. And um, for people that are invested in, in superhero films like I am, and for somebody, especially like someone like me who um, is a massive fan of Tobey Maguire, and, and um, I very much do like the new Tom Holland films. Um, both, you know, I thought Homecoming was very good. I thought Far From Home wasn't, wasn't you know, far behind it. I thought it was also a pretty good film. Um, don't compare, though, for me, to the, the excellence of the first two Spider-Man films of Tobey Maguire. Um, obviously a lot of that is nostalgia I can remember watching them uh, it's probably I think the only VHSs my nan had um, so but I, I fucking love Ted McGuire films so he's a Spider-Man film so I'm very much excited and, and I'm I'm quite enthralled by the idea of, of like the, the concept that, you know, there's rumours that they're going to all meet up in the third act with Doctor Strange going to bring them through and they're all going to fight their respective rogues gallery and you're going to have you know the old Doctor Octopus and you know you're going to have Willem Dafoe as as um it's Green Goblin, and and then it'll be Electro from Amazing Spider-Man Two, and then it'll have fucking Mysterio come back, and all that. I, you know, it's a little bit cringy. It's a little bit, you know, obviously these are superhero films for kids, but it's a little bit, you know, kids playing in a box of Legos, making everyone fight each other. Um, but oh, I'm pretty hyped, man. But you weren't too big on the idea. Were you a little, a little bit like, you know, when I first said it to you, you were a little bit like, oh, well, it's a bit Spider-Verse-y. I don't know. The thing is, the thing is. I don't necessarily get is the fact that they've just had this massive animation success with Spider-Verse and there's obviously a confirmed sequel and they're probably going to do you know I'd, say, I'd imagine they're going to do maybe three maybe four you know they could you know they could carry on with that animated franchise for a while 
Mm-hmm. It just seems a bit too soon. I don't know. Like the kind of building on the hype of that, like. Because I guess before Spider Verse, were people wanting a Spider Verse film with Tom McGuire and um, Andrew Garfield? Were they really wanting them guys back in in MCU? I don't know whether they would have been if Spider Verse wasn't successful. I guess it's natural that you know people enjoyed that film and people went to see that film. Maybe they've just thought you know makes sense for us to to include that sort of uh, aspect into the MCU. One thing I will say though is that um, I think it's like. If if they're gonna do this and they actually are gonna have the old Spider Men um, come back and have you know people from those universes and so on, just like Sony get your act together at this point. Like they're making way more money with the Spider Man films now than they would have done if they weren't in the MCU. I mean that's pretty well you know it's, it's it's kind of no debate there. I don't think I think if the Tom Holland films weren't part of the MCU, they wouldn't have done it anywhere near as well critically, maybe critically, but not as well commercially for sure. But then also, um, you gotta look how much of a success Venom was, box office wise. I mean, like, obviously, it, it yeah, was true, hated, but, but it did really well. Well, what, what, was, what my point was going to be was is that Sony, obviously, last year, Sony, was it this year? Well, last year, Sony and MCU Marvel had that big contractual dispute, and Sony was saying they're going to pull Spider Man, and, you know, they eventually resolved it. But just, like, come on, just have, if, if they're going to go with this Spider Verse thing, why not just have. The spot. I, I know they're doing a separate Spider-Man thing, you know, with the Sinister Six, and they're gonna have Spider-Woman and Spider-Gwen or whatever, and they're gonna bring in all these characters. Why not just have them as part of the MCU, like officially? You know, they've brought in Michael Keaton, um, presumably to reprise his role from the MCU anyway, um, and they're trying to bring in, you know, like some Morbius and Venom and so on. Why not just? I mean, it doesn't. And to me as well, from from a from a universe point, obviously, there's only so far you can go with saying. Like they did it in, uh, they did it in Endgame, and they did it in Spider-Man: Far From Home, and you know why characters weren't available to fight against the villains. But there's only so far you can go on the Spider-Man universe, especially when it's going to be going on for so long, before you can say, "Hang on a minute, why is it only Spider-Man who's fighting these people? Why isn't Doctor Strange? Why isn't Captain Marvel coming to help against, you know, Morbius or Venom or whatever?" Like it, uh, I don't know. It just I mean, for Doctor me makes Strange more sense for Sony to. In Spider-Man Three, uh, I, but I, I think that the, the, I've never felt like the Sony universe of Marvel characters, or whatever, is a different thing. Like I, I have always interpreted it, and I, I think that there are things that they've the companies have said that you kind of pull in my direction. I think as uh, things that kind of contradict yeah. my opinion, but I've but always been of the opinion that they are part of the same universe and more no, no, for sure. thing. But it's just that because of contractual reasons, they. Don't want to think of it. But then also, you know, you could say the same thing. How come in Thor Ragnarok when he's fighting... Oh, that's probably not a good one because the Hulk's there. <laughs> How come in <laughs> Iron Man 3 when he's fighting off some random cunt, then it then, like... How comes Captain Marvel doesn't come down from space, or how come in you know uh, Captain America the the fucking no, it makes one, sense. But what I mean is like Iron when Man it comes to you no, know, that makes sense. But what I mean is like when it comes to say you know they f- they fight some. I'm not seeing all of the Iron Man films, but okay, they fight someone in Iron Man three or whatever. But then that isn't just disregarded completely and never talked about. Like in in you know it is ref- like certain things are referenced in other films and. I don't know. I just feel like the whole Sony thing—they're trying to have this like sort of mini, like microcosm of Sony characters in a set. It is like obviously they're going to go for MCU canon and they're going to have. It's like know, the Netflix shows. Yeah, 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 for sure. But they—I don't know. I feel like if they're going to have this big universe, they should just say outright, you know, these these uh, 
just why why keep it separate as well? Like they've gone they've gone for the Avengers, they've gone for this big thing where they want all the superheroes to come together and fight against the the big bads. You know, Sinister Six versus the Avengers would be I don't think I think far more interesting than Sinister Six versus Spider Man. Like it, it, I don't know. Obviously, you have to keep it separate somewhat because they are Spider Man villains and and you know you have to pay homage and respect to the source material. But at the end of the day, it it, it does become a bit of hard to suspend your disbelief when. You know, Spider-Man's fighting these villains in a city where, potentially in a city where, you know, there's there's plenty of other powerful superheroes who are just kind of sitting back and putting their feet up and letting Spider-Man deal with it all. The answer's money, and it? it's going to be con- contract problems and money between the two, and which one earns them more money. And if they have a different Marvel character, it means they're going to have to pay money to, and yeah. fight and fight. At the end of the day, it's all money based in it, so we'll yeah. have to see. But you know, going back to the original point, I'm just very hyped to see Pizza Time in the MCU. Who? Oh, oh, Pizza Time. I thought he said. Yeah. I, I thought he was naming, naming like a villain. Then I was like, who's that? Pizza Time. He, he comes along. And he, he spikes pizzas. He gives me all like salmonella. It's like jump pepperoni or jump jump some seafood in there. You know, maybe some food poisoning, but it'd be worth it. It tastes nice. Important question, JL. I feel this is very film related. Yeah. Um, thoughts on anchovies on pizza? I mean, I don't think I've ever really had them on a pizza. I don't. I don't. I must have done. I must have done. I probably have done. Yeah, I feel like pineapple is the big debate, and that's pineapple actually... is, is the big debate. But then, to be fair, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Not that I watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when I was a kid, but their whole thing is like, I want, they were like, oh yeah, I want a pizza, no anchovies, dude. Like they always hate anchovies, and I feel like, <laughs> and then in, in Futurama, there's an episode where like he spends like a million quid on the last can of anchovies, and then everyone has it, and everyone hates it except for him. It's like I feel like it's a thing that's hated upon, but I'm a I mean, massive pineapple. anchovy fan. But then pineapple, my opinion is I don't like pineapple, so I don't like pineapple on pizza. However, I don't feel like it's bad. Like if you want it, I don't think it's a bad thing to have. Pineapple is is beautiful on a pizza. Like how and pineapple, you just that's just a classic. You just yeah, it's not know. for me, but I have no problem with it. I think people that like oh, it's a disgrace. Are a bit throws weird. you back to those like days when you're like eight years old and you go to your nan's house, just throws in like a cheap oven ham and pineapple pizza that's just like it's been a pepperoni just one nostalgia that's nostalgia house. for me yeah your well, nostalgia is the pizza time my nostalgia yeah my nostalgia is and my nostalgia is the ham and pineapple pizzas yeah and uh, have you got any news you want to talk about uh there's one piece of kind of news which I want to talk about but it's going to be relevant for the quiz section that we do at the end oh. um I don't think there's anything particularly I mean, if there's nothing I can remember on top of my head, then probably I was not. Gonna, uh, unless it's that, that is what you were going to talk about at the end. You were talking to me a little bit about um, Oscar noms and Chadwick Boseman and such. Oh, uh, yeah, no, that wasn't it. But, um, yeah, obviously there's... I don't know who it was. I just saw a tweet earlier. Uh, someone saying that um, apparently Netflix are officially campaigning for Chadwick Boseman for Mare's Black Bottom, the Netflix, upcoming Netflix film. Uh, apparently Chadwick Boseman is going to be officially... Um, nominated and campaigned for for lead performer in that um it's here's the source it's from kyle buchanan who uh, works for the new york times so very credible um yeah so obviously that will affect yeah because there was rumors he was going to be supporting actor wasn't there yeah so obviously that will affect the likes of as we'll talk about shortly chicago 7 with the amount of uh, potential supporting actor nominations that are in that film and also, um, yeah, obviously it will affect the uh, the best actor 
nominations as well. So yeah, just uh, just a bit of news there as well on the Oscar nominations front. I'm personally campaigning for Sean Astin of uh, Schemer's fame for Best Supporting Actor because he's a friend of the podcast and he loves the podcast. Shout out. Shout out once again, Sean Astin. Okay, um, I think that's all. And I think we it's time to go into the first review and almost exactly on the half an hour mark. Actually, not that almost exactly, but it's fairly close to the half an hour mark, which is early for us. And we're going to start off by talking about the newest film from... Um, polymath Miranda July who's uh, known for a, a large uh, array of things from uh, performance art to books to um, the indie film that she released back in 2004 Me and You and Everyone We Know uh, that did fairly well um, she makes music she makes she, she acts she, you know she, she's pretty much you know she's got her fingers in as many pies as, as humanly possible and she has written and directed um, this kind of semi-quirky, well, I think very quirky uh, film, Cajillionaire, starring Evan Rachel Wood uh, and Deborah Winger, about this uh, a character called Old Dolio, who um, has been raised by parents who are both con men and, I guess, con women, um, who just uh, don't have real jobs. They live in this, like, weird flat where, like, the walls get covered in bubbles um, and they, um, which is kind of hard to explain if you haven't seen the film, um, but they, they, instead of making their money, normally, you know, they, they steal and they have different scams. I have a scam where they um, steal thing, things from um, safety deposit boxes. There's a scam quite early in the film where they fly to New York, then they fly back immediately and they get one of them, they get one of the parents to take the kid's luggage and then um, like say that they've lost their luggage to get a check. Um, I say kid, it, you know, it's it's a twenty year old or something, um, and uh, and it's a story basically of of this this woman, old Dolio, um, and how the meeting of a slightly more normal um, woman uh, called Melanie, who um, whose favorite film is Ocean's Eleven, and therefore wants to join them on their crime, and through the relationship of this new character Melanie into the family. Um, old Dolio only then realizes um, kind of the the mental trauma that um, that has been given to her by unloving parents and so on. So I th- I th- yeah, was that? I think that was a pretty good summary. Of the that film. was pretty good. One yeah. thing I will say though is, who did you say the director was? Miranda July. Oh, I completely misheard that. I For thought sure. you said someone else's name. But like I thought you said someone with like four or five names. I was like, who is this person? I said Evan Rachel Wood because I was talking about her as the the lead. Oh, I don't even know what I heard. Ma- Ma- I, Ma- I heard some. I heard. I don't know what it was. I Maybe I misspoke, but yeah, Miranda July is the director and the writer. And um, hmm, you know, I I, um, I think I'll go first in this one because I always make you go first, and I'll make you go first on on um, Trial of Chicago Seven. But um, I was, I would say that this. I'm trying to think how to review this. Okay, I'll put it this way. There's not many to I love watching films and I can get myself very excited and looking forward to films that that look shit. You know, a lot of time I think of films like, oh that's shit, but I think oh you know, I'll watch it, it'll be a laugh. And and there's only been a few times this year where I've sat in the cinema or I've pressed play on Netflix and I thought, Oh, I really don't want to watch this. Um uh, one of them was um, <laughs> Did I say that? Oh. 
No, 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 no. I'm just oh. saying, like, I was, making, <laughs> I was making a very bad joke because it didn't um, make any sense. Yeah. One of the films I, I, I did that for was, uh, I think, Project Power. Uh, I didn't really want to see that. And I watched it. It wasn't very good. I didn't really want to see what Little Women because I, I knew it wasn't even my kind of thing. And, and that just it's like the opposite of the old guard, though. We went into that kind of hyped. Yeah, we went into that hyped. So I normally I can get myself up for it. And there's a lot of films I've seen that are average that I was excited for. Um, and one of them I, I didn't want to watch was Baby Teeth. Um, which, you know, I, I've described as surprise of the year. I've got it in my letterbox top four. I adore that film. And I'll talk so highly of every performance in it. And another one of those was Kajillionaire. Uh, I was in uh, home with my mum and she was like, oh, it looks shit as well. I was like, let's just see it because I need to do it for the podcast. And she's like, all right then. And we had a thing, uh, for the trailer and, 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 you know, the description made me think, oh, I, I really don't want to watch this. But looking back, I think if Baby Teeth hadn't been released this year, I would describe this as my surprise of the year. I um I was again really really wasn't looking forward to it. Really thought it was just going to be this like super over the top cringy like you know tr- like all about the scams and stuff. Um, but I was completely taken aback. I sat there in the cinema as it ended after the ending, just thinking, "What the fuck was that? That was uh, insane." Um, you know, that's one way of describing it. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was truly a, a, a mad journey. In, um, I guess you could almost say in the same vein of that of something like um, I'm thinking of many things. However, um, it definitely had a more narrative, clear narrative uh, passage. But I thought it, it did an excellent job. I've always kind of said that the the greatest tool of any filmmaker or any director is to make you th- feel the emotions they want you to feel without the feeling that you're pushed into it. To make you feel. Uh, the way that you're supposed to about a character without them just outwardly doing it, like outwardly putting it in your face. And I thought that um, whilst the, the, maybe the, the, the parents who change on them so quickly, I think the, the feelings you, you have towards the characters of, of Melanie and, and Aldolio are uh, done so well. You never feel like it was building up to an obvious end. I think that the, the, the character changes and, and, and the, the motivation behind them is always so clear and... I think he manages to create this kind of, you know, I think Old Olio appears in many ways unlikable. She's almost rude and emotionless, but yet you manage to root for her for the whole film. Uh, and the juxtaposition between her and, and her love interest, uh, Gina Rodriguez, uh, who, who plays Melanie, is so, uh, you know, the juxtaposition between the characters uh, creates this like lovely um, opposites attract feeling. And, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a relationship that you're, you're rooting for throughout the film and, and uh, spoilers, but, you know, eventually gets paid off. Uh, I thought the, um, the cinematography was uh, beginning, the beginning of the film starts a little bit sh- shaky. They have that... Um, literally shaky feel of whenever they they talk a lot about the um the end coming you know these these earthquakes that are going to kind of end the the world that they get told to her by Odolio's dad and it has this effect where the whole camera shakes and it looks very low budget i think and at the beginning of the film I it happened i was like oh this cinematography is going to be awful but then within 25 minutes there's these shots of her on her own on the, on the plane back and, and and on the bus back and I just thought it was just you know could could be easily be posters. Uh, I thought that the score was actually up there with everything I, I've watched this year. Um, I thought that the score was absolutely impeccable. Um, I'm sure that's something that we probably will agree with, even if you didn't have as highly opinion as I did. I think we can both agree that the music was very good. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, as well as the, the it was a very it was funnier than I thought it was going to be. 
Um, and the performances, obviously I've talked to both of Richard Wood and Gina Rodriguez, but the parents, uh, Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger, were um, outwardly funny on, on a lot of occasions. Um, and yeah, I, again, I, I think it was a, a very, very beautiful love story. I think it, it had a lot of good... Um, subtext and also very clear um narrative about um the you know bad parenting you know obviously it's summed up in this kind of almost unbelievably bad example but i think it ties into a lot of issues with, with parenthood that that a lot of people obviously have to deal with um and i thought that it um it's revealed later on the film that she's 26 years old which makes you question a lot of the events of the film because i always thought the whole film she threw she was a bit like 19 but yeah, the way that her parents treat her and our kind of this concept of, of freedom and independence and living for yourself and, and kind of how hard it is to break away from that. Um, that w- worked so well with this big crossroads that, that comes midway through the film when she thinks she's dead and this whole world and, and she kind of goes on about having no regrets and in that sen- moment she realises all the things that go wrong and it kind of makes that big switch, especially with her, her view of her parents that I thought was um, was done in a really good way and a very artsy way. Uh, if I was to go into negatives of the film, I say that there are a few events uh, throughout the film um, for, for the parents that there's one big event that, that, that happens where the parents, um, I guess this is a bit of a spoiler, try to fuck her friend, her, her, their daughter's love interest. And I didn't see that coming. In retrospect, I guess you always think they're going to be shitty, but you don't really get that vibe into them. So that, that was a surprise. So I think maybe the, the kind of the unfamiliar character direction from, from the parents, but I, I think realistically the the, main, the biggest issue I think is something that a lot of the critics of the film, such as, as Mark Kermo, do, who, who wasn't so favourable of the film, I watched his video the other day, um, describe about the, uh, it's kind of a little bit over quirky in points. Uh, the, 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 the key ones that I think of are there's a, a they're, landlord um cries uncontrollably randomly um and there's bubbles coming down from their apartment every 25 minutes or whatever or every hour or so i thought those things were unnecessarily um quirky unnecessarily kind of a bit mad um but overall i thought it was a fairly beautiful uh representation of a lot of um real life uh issues that a lot of people go through painted in a uh, bubblegum light and uh, i would give the film probably an eight out of ten and it definitely has stuck with me Okay. Well, how do I follow that? Because I, I am as confused as to what to say about the film as I was when I watched the film. <laughs> um, it was okay. So I, w- I want to kind of more of a discussion, like rather than a review on my end, because I think what well, I agree with a lot of what you said, and I still maybe didn't like it as much as you did. Um. So it might be interesting just to maybe go into like a more of like a discussion format and just sort of, you sure, know, just sure. just sort of pick apart things that you said or mm-hmm. maybe add some things myself. Maybe you can just comment on them on them as we go. But I think I think overall, one thing I will say just straight from the get go is I went into this. You went into this not expecting very much and unable to hype yourself up and being presently pleasantly surprised. Uh, I was. Not necessarily fully 100% hyped as something like Tenet, for example. But I went into this with a lot more hope and a lot more um, maybe expectations than you did. And I came out liking the film, but I came out also kind of going, I really, really wanted to like that a lot more than I did. Um, I just didn't really click with it, I don't think, maybe. Um and like, I just find it felt overall it was kind of hard to take too much away from the film. It kind of 
for me felt like it struggled. It was struggling to find its feet. What he wanted to be, did he want like, what did he want to say? Um, what what was it? What was the point of it all? Uh, in, in a way, I think the ending, as you mentioned, uh, was was in spite of what I've just said. I thought the ending was very satisfying and rewarding and paid off a lot of things. Um, and you know, it kind of felt justified and. Um, it was very much a punch the M out for me. I was like, I was like, the whole open whole film. I was like, come on, come on, come on. It happened. I was like, let's go. See, so, okay, so you mentioned the score, which I will say is probably my favourite part of the film. Yeah. Um, Emil Masseri, I think that's how you say it, and I'm mm-hmm. probably butchering the name, but um, also did the score for Last Black Man in San Francisco, which I've not seen yet. Um, but a lot of people were saying please get um, nominated or win awards for this score because I, as, I, as, as I'm assuming that um, they didn't win for for that film or even nominated, I'm not too sure. But uh, yeah, a lot of people are saying that Emil deserves a lot more, um, Emil Masseri deserves a lot more praise and a lot mm-hmm. more, um, you know, credit for, for the work that they've done in, in the films. Um, I, I agree 100%. I think the score was, was beautiful and uh, interesting and almost unique. And the performance-wise, I think the acting was very good throughout. I think, especially um, the the two sort of main characters, so to speak, of uh, Evan Rachel Wood, who I know from Westworld, so I know that she's very competent at playing um, unusual characters, a character with multiple facets and different intricacies. And um, obviously, in Westworld, she's playing Dolores, one of the uh, the the one of the robot characters like the park guests so very much a um multi-faceted uh performance in in that show and i think she kind of translates that really well here even though you mentioned that it kind of feels emotionless and um you know that kind of emotionless quality at times i think there was still definitely uh different strands of her character especially that were sort of borne out throughout the development of the film obviously as she develops this friendship and relationship with uh, Gina Rodriguez's character, um, you, you you definitely get a sense that she's uh, starting almost from nothing and, and sort of building up towards something, which is obviously paid off at the end, as I said before. And the chemistry between those two, I thought was really good. I thought, um, you know, the 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 performances and the chemistry between those two uh, lead actresses was was great. Also, the the parents, as you mentioned, um, for that kind of quirky, unsettling but also kind of funny uh, vibe that they were giving off, I I almost kind of wanna. Not not hundred percent directly, and they're not obviously comparable uh, films. In in as well, maybe they are as you, as you mentioned. With I'm thinking of many things with Tony Collette and um, oh yeah, Dave Fulis. Uh, yeah, yeah, the kind of quirky, unsettling, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. funny sort of dark comedy. Um, I think that, I, that is given through them performances. I think you know we say you don't really know what it is. It, it doesn't know what it wants to be. Or, or I think there is there is a part of which I agree for that. And I think you know the that is most summed up for me with the issue I said where it kind of goes over quirky. That's why you know I've already given an eight and not higher uh, for yeah. a four star instead of uh, instead of a five, or whatever. Um, you know that those that character that, that can't stop crying and such. And, and see, the, I, I didn't see the thing the is bubble. I didn't mind the bubbles thing and the car- the guy crying. They they were they they were kind of part see, and parcel of what the film was trying to go for for me. See, I kind I, of accepted those. I think that that seemed like a little bit over the top, like unrealistic and a bit mad. Where I thought the comedy was so well done, 
with the parents. I think the parents were the perfect mixture of um, it's like they're like the kind of people that are like mad, but like in a real world context. It's like the the, the guy that comes yeah. up crying in the bubbles thing. It just seems like like you know doesn't seem like very realistic. It doesn't seem very like saying. But those people seemed like absolute bastards and very funny about it. But also in the kind of context of like that could be someone you'd meet. And I think that the comedy was done so well. Yeah. I think Miranda July really honed in on that aspect of society with the parents, where she may have missed in some other other places, in my opinion. Yeah, maybe. But I kind of think as well, though, on that regard, is that that you mentioned the fact that you you thought that the bubbles and the guy crying were sort of too quirky and too over too over the top and sort of ridiculous to to some extent. Then you then obviously you said about how the uh, the parents are kind of you know even though they are kind of strange and surreal in in some ways, he does have this kind of real life quality to it, which in other films I think would have worked well. But I think the fact that this film was overall for me at least in tone was very surreal and very uh abs- not abstract very like over the top and and strange i feel like the fact that the parents did feel sort of grounded didn't work for me as much and the fact the things that were very strange like for example the the scene you mentioned earlier where she thinks she's dead and and it goes into that sort of universe you know cosmos star um cinematography and Kind of gave me like La La Land vibes from from that cinema from that um the the observatory scene was you kind of you kind of accept that because of the turn of the film whereas for me the parents felt they kind of felt in the middle ground and it just didn't work for me to to maybe to the full extent as 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 um Miranda July was was trying to go for I don't know I, I I feel like I did like the film I thought it was a good film but I don't necessarily think I understood parts or agreed with things that happened or understood why things were happening for example you mentioned the the film the the scene in the film where the parents try and have uh the the threesome in the you know with the june rodriguez character mm-hmm. and it just felt kind of like really like where's this come from why is it happening or there was also um that was one of those ones though that i felt at the time like what the fuck and then now i think about it when i was saying the review i was like actually i think that is kind of necessary because i think that is the first time where every single audience member thinks wait and it kind of goes into my thing that like they don't want to push someone to having an opinion but almost like with the scam at the beginning the scams at the beginning you could kind of see them as like they're fucking the system whatever but when they do that you realize that maybe their motives aren't so like you know intelligent they're just dickheads i guess maybe mm. even though it is a little bit in your face i guess it almost feels like the ends just for the means that like i guess if that makes you realize how bad they are that's like a good way i guess it's like yeah. it's a little bit forced but, but also but also the one thing as well that i didn't necessarily kind of click with with this film was I liked the development of the relationship um, between uh, Rachel Wood and Rodriguez, and I thought that, you know, how that kind of progressed the character of Aldolio and um, sort of pushed her to to challenge her life and stuff was was interesting. But the kind of way that the relationship came about, I just didn't, like, I just didn't really accept that. I I think maybe that's why I kind of didn't accept a lot of the things in the film was because... I, I didn't really understand how this situation came to be. And and that's also maybe what plays into that scene that I mentioned 
with the parents because also how did that come to be? Because it just feels kind of like it's happened just for a film to happen. It doesn't feel natural or it doesn't feel like this would actually, you know, like why why is this character they met on a plane just suddenly becoming part of the crew as if, they, you know, she's known them for, for a long time or sort of, sort of some things that were happening as well just felt as if it was like the timing and the pacing just felt a bit off as well in terms of how, um, how you know, involved characters were with, with other characters. I think a lot of the, the differences we have with the film is that on a technical level, we don't disagree. But I think yeah. it's that we're almost kind of, each one of us is kind of standing on the each other on the different leg it's it's like i'm mm-hmm. kind of i'm accepting some ish, some parts because i want it to go a certain way you know there's this kind of it, it kind of is fence sitting between um artsy and cerebral and, and realistic and and kind of yeah. um allegorical uh, and i think that i'm kind of have my foot down on like i want it to be you know i want it to be a believable comedy with you know with allegory and and such and i think you're more on kind of wanting it to be a bit more on that thing and that's why you accept parts like the bubbles and, and the guy laughing and then perhaps don't feel so strong yeah, about I, the parents i think it just comes from um what we want it to be you know i think that, that that's obviously important i guess in any film um is is what when you especially within the first kind of hour of a film you kind of make up your mind on subconsciously on where you want it to go and how you want it to go and, and what you feel about it and i think uh, maybe the reason why i liked it more than you or you liked it less than me was just for what we were seeking from it and because it it felt like it could have gone a lot of ways and maybe it went in a way that suited me yeah maybe I think it definitely could have leaned more into into that surrealism, and also uh, one thing I will say is that um, I forgot what I was going to say now. <laughs> I, I think I forgot what to say. I yeah. think there's a there's a lot of strength in the title. I think the title is is incredibly important, and and you can to a degree judge a book by its cover, because, and again, I'm going to compare it once again to Baby Teeth, um, where if Baby Teeth was called. Um, Miller, or it was called, you know, something like that, or whatever. I think that it would almost lose points. I think the fact that it doubles down on the, um, once again, I use the word to sound overly pretentious and make my year, year eleven English teacher happy. The um, so the allegorical oh, okay. um, <laughs> sense of, of of that baby teeth that that comes with it, with the, the coming of age of a light of um, Lisa Scanlon's character in that film um, is it, comparative to to Kajilin there because I think the film. Um, only after watching the film, I think you realise the importance and, and meaning of, of the phrase "cajillionaire." Um, early in the film, um, the the dad just says that you could only have something or you could only do a certain thing if you were a cajillionaire. Talking about like a fast car, I can't remember what it was, but I think the after watching the film, it's only then that you realise that um, the true cajillionaire is is the is Avon Richards' character, is, is Aldolio, and, and and it isn't about the uh, the the money it's about the the love and the fact that she she felt kind of almost broke um in, in the presence of her parents and only fire uh, letting herself go does she uh, kind of feel fulfilled and, and becomes a, a moral cajillionaire yeah i think that 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 you know this is a strength for title it doesn't really mean much or it gives away a different impression of the film we think it's going to be some sort of kind of you know heist film from the title and then it turns out that the, the, it has much stronger meaning i think that, that it's just um, a good example yeah. of, of a title that um really only shows its worth after the film ends much much like baby teeth 
Yeah, I remember what I was going to say, actually. But one thing I always pick up on what you just said there is it kind of felt for me, as I mentioned earlier, you mentioned about taking things away from the film. I just didn't really take much away from it. I kind of felt, came out just feeling like that was a film. Um, mm. And I didn't really come out thinking, oh, that means this about parenting or that means this about children or that means this about money or, or whatever it is. Like, I didn't come out f- taking much away from it. And I don't know whether that was... Because there was a little too much they was trying to say, but not enough in in quality. Too much, like too many different strands that weren't fully explained or explored, or whether it was just because I didn't click with it. But I I feel uh, what I was gonna say earlier, which I forgot, was I feel like at times it felt like it it was trying to be too clever, um, and the the kind of screenplay and and the dialogue and the script felt kind of a bit muddied at times. There was one point uh, towards the end of the film. Uh, where the, the the two characters uh have they they say they're gonna check inside, um the safety deposit box or whatever it was inside the house like the security box, and they said something along the lines of like if the money's still here it means this and if if it's not there it means this and if there's only some of it here it means this, and it, I was just spent the next five minutes of the film kind of not really fully paying attention just kind of thinking hang on a minute what what so that what what are they trying to say like what what does that mean like. It I felt had, like no, I, I understood what that meant. To be fair, I kind of I got it, but it kind of felt like it felt like it was trying to be too clever with what it was trying to say, but also at the same time it was trying to say too much exposition. Uh, like if they hadn't said anything, I would have been fine. But the fact they said it kind of took me out. Well, I think I can understand it because all of the different scenarios very strongly affect the thought process of of the parents. I think having that big shocking twist the moments after that. Um, I think was only made stronger by her explaining yeah. the situation and almost that re- that fake relief or, or you know short line relief that, that you feel. Um, also, I didn't understand the birthday presents thing or anything to do with what the aim of the ultimate aim of the parents was after the second act. Like I understood their their, their intentions in the first and second acts, like they're trying to you know con their way and scam people or scam businesses or whatever to get money to live because they can't afford the rent and they need money but then towards the end of the film like okay you're doing this why like because she was she was only ever a, a tool for them she was only using that to get her to come to the thing to then get access to the apartment to their to then steal from them you know it just shows that yeah the, the but like ultimate they... goal of the parents the first two acts are almost justified by the action of the third and you realize that she was only ever there because she could get into small areas they couldn't Oh, I don't know. I very much liked it. I thought, that, especially yeah, I didn't mention it. I think, especially thought the scene, the um, the scenes, uh, which that she went to her her parents, she went to the um, parent children conferences meetings. I thought were, were probably some of the strongest in the film. I think it was a very good and clear way of showing hmm. the um, the fact that she uh, had that that lack of very... parental um, <laughs> strength in her, the lack of, of good. Uh, it was parent. A, it was a very clear way of showing the parents gaslighting their twenty six year old child. <laughs> I couldn't believe when she said she's 26. It's like, what? And then, the whole film, she was like 22 or 19. I think that's the thing as well, though, maybe I didn't necessarily like about the film was that it didn't really say much about... It didn't really... There was no kind of comeuppance for the parents for what they've done. Like, it didn't really say anything. And it didn't really have much to say about their treatment. Like, it, it was more... Obviously, the focus on Dolio and her development as a character and, and sort of getting her independence and, and, you know, romance or whatever. But I feel like... I mean, and this is obviously a very, very different film, and a film that I like a, a more than you. Um, but for example, with the Invisible Man, 
which um, also came out this year and had a very, very primary focus on like gaslighting and abusive relationships and so on. It kind of felt like that felt like it had a lot more to say in that regard, and it, it, it actually, you know, it it criticised that issue. Whereas this film kind of just kind of left it. It kind of just said, "Well, I don't think personally. I would say I don't think the bad guy has to lose for the good guy to win." And I think, oh no, no, for sure. But yeah. it just felt like that. I don't know. It just felt like ninety minutes of, you know, bad parents and and the bad parents don't really suffer anything, and and the the good child, the the child just, and I don't know. I need to, maybe I need to rewatch it. Maybe it's one of those films that I need to rewatch because I'm not. I, did I, have rewatch it. To, I have been dying to rewatch it. No, I haven't. Yeah, because just because of, of matching up with Union and stuff that I yeah. have to get. To. Also, say more as well from last week is another film for sure that I probably want to try and get to rewatch at some point if I can. Okay, moving on. I think it's time to move on. So, if you want yeah. to give that final uh, rating, so I gave that an eight out of ten. A conservative Ooh. eight out of ten. Ooh, it's a tough one. Uh. <sighs> I feel harsh given this score because technically it's a technically like cinematography and direction and acting and uh, cinematography and composition and the, the the music was all good. Uh, it would feel harsh to give it less than. Okay, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a six, a six out of ten. Yikes! I feel like it was lean. It. It could vary. It could vary from a five and a half to a six and a half. With it. I'm just gonna go for a six, just because it's the middle wow. ground. Okay. Um, yeah, and maybe I need to rewatch it. Maybe I just was tired or not in the mood, or I don't know what what. But maybe if I rewatch it, it will uh, it will help me. You know, well, maybe you're, get you're your level with, of appreciation. Kermo didn't like it a lot. And that moves us on to the main film of the week, which I have a lot less to say about, to be fair, um, which is the Netflix film, The Trial of Chicago 7. I was thinking about spoilers in this. Do you think the fact that it's a Netflix film changes the need for spoilers? So I feel like if it's a Netflix film, I don't really care about spoilers as much because you can just go watch it now. Everyone has Netflix. I'm going to say Netflix. the fact it's a Netflix film and the fact that it's based on a real event should probably mean we don't need a spoiler warning. So, well, yeah, we'll give a spoiler warning now is that everything we say yeah, is yeah. going to include spoilers. Um, and you can go watch it now because if you haven't got Netflix in 2020 you're probably living on a rock and you can't say it's because you're broke because everybody knows someone that has Netflix that you can steal from okay let's talk about The Trial of Chicago 7 Trial of Chicago 7 is the um, real life story of well it's seven but really eight individuals who were involved in a set of uh, protests slash riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention um, in relation to wanting to end the war of Vietnam, um, due to uh, the fact that the protests turned into a riot, they were seen as the by by the new government, um, led by Richard Nixon, of being kind of um, trouble trouble starters and 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 um, kind of against the state. So they were uh, taken to court, obviously taken to trial. That's what the film comes from, and. Um, I, I try to. The film follows their the story of the trial and then trying to plead innocence um, and get around a very clearly um, unfit judge and um, a number of dubious legal practices. Um, and it is, uh, I guess, one of the most notable things about it is that it has uh, one of the most the strongest ensemble casts of uh, 2020. Uh, it features the likes of Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, uh, Yaha, how do you pronounce his name? Yaya Abdul Mateen. Yaya Abdul Mateen, yeah. Uh, Jeremy Strong, Michael Keaton, Joseph Gordon Levitt, Mark uh, Rylance, uh, loads of people. There's loads of, loads of people. You know, you 
he, we're going to talk about that later because of the Oscar nominations, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, it follows the trial, and um, it's probably one of the more hyped films that has come to on demand this year. And uh, I know I was certainly looking forward to it. I watched it today, and um, you watched it yesterday. And I'd like you to tell me what you thought of the film, JL. I thought, okay, this is going to be very not similar completely, but uh, somewhat similar to my thoughts on Kajillion. Now, actually, a bit of a parallel. So. Not to the same extent, uh, my final review will be higher than a 6 out of 10, but what I will say is I went into this expecting a lot. I saw the trailer on Twitter when it first got posted on by the Netflix account a month or two ago, whenever it got posted, um, and I was like, oh, this trailer looks really good, Like I don't know too much about the story, so it will be interesting to, to learn about it. The cast looks really good, uh, Aaron Sorkin directing, obviously it's his second film directing, but... He, uh, he wrote The Social Network, which is one of my favourite films ever. Um, so I was expecting very, 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 very high things. I was, you know, it's never good to go into a film thinking, right, this is going to be a five-star film. Um, but, you know, some certain films with directors or cast attached, you kind of yeah, have Tenet. that expectation. I think we all thought Tenet was going to be great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I, what I will say is that I was ultimately underwhelmed but still impressed i think that's probably the the, the summary the uh the headline mm-hmm. yeah so okay. i think given the screenplay for social network which is one of my favorite screenplays ever this was kind of a bit lackluster like it was it was good it wasn't like bad but it was just a bit generic and there was certain there were certain parts which i really really liked um there was some really nice imagery and like cinematography and i think you can tell for sure this was you know uh netflix put probably a fair bit of money into this um in terms of like the production value and the sets they used and some of the um some of the like the reenactments that they had they had were, were quite impressive i thought however um i think certain parts of dialogue were a bit were were quite weak um I think the performances of, of the, the ensemble cast you mentioned, so Sachiran Kerr and Eddie Redmayne, um, Adomadi Mateen and uh, you know, so on, uh, were, were very good, I thought. Um, some some were stronger than others, and there's been a bit of a debate, which is one I wanted to ask you about to, uh, on the podcast, is, you know, who did you think was uh, maybe the standout or the standout, you know, pair, or maybe there's two, maybe, you know, maybe there's two people or three people, or whatever. Um, I think from what I've been reading uh, in the reviews before the film came out and people's letterbox reviews and just general uh, things I've been hearing on social media and stuff is that there's been, it's been very, people agree that the cast is generally good in terms of the performances, but there's been a bit of a divide between who people think has been to stand out. Um, obviously we talked earlier about uh, the Oscars and, um, you know, we talked, we referenced uh, the the supporting actors who could be nominated. Um, I don't know what do you think because I I want to get your thoughts first actually on who you think do you who do you think will or could be nominated for supporting actor for this? Okay, this is tough. I think I'm not sure about who will. I've got a feeling that maybe Eddie Redmayne. Might. Okay, who? Okay, who would you like to be? But I think based on the film, the best acting performance in the film came from 
Yaya Abdul Mateen, uh, his role uh, as uh, what's his name, uh, Bobby Se- uh, Bobby Seal. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. I think that he got significantly less screen time um, yeah. and was much less the focus of the almost equally good Sasha Baron Cohen. The thing about Sasha Baron Cohen's, I, I, I think it's a tough one because I, really you could say Edward Man, you could say Jeremy Strong, you could say Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you could say you know a lot of people. I thought Michael Keaton was ex- incre- uh, surprisingly impressive for how much he showed. Up. I thought he still stole the the two scenes that he he really was the, the focus of. But mm-hmm. I think about Sasha Baron Cohen, I think you know I dare I say I actually don't think Eddie Redmayne was very good. I was wasn't particularly impressed by Eddie Redmayne. I thought he didn't come across as believable a lot. I think he... He was possible, I think that's the word you would call Yeah, but I, I, I've got to say, I was a little bit disappointed. I thought he, okay. you know... Um, I think ever, ever since the theory, everything came out, I had such high hopes for him and I haven't particularly taken to him since. Uh, I thought, you know, obviously, Jupiter Sending was, was known for, for being bad, but but I thought uh, Sacha Baron Cohen um, was, was uh, exceptionally good. Uh, his accent, maybe at times, was a little bit, you know... On, on the edgy side but I thought when it came to uh, conveying uh, the I think he conveyed his character's politics and philosophy and emotion um, mm-hmm. to a greater degree that um, maybe Eddie Redmayne or Jeremy Strong or uh, John Carroll Lynch did and that was no disrespect to them because you know I, I think that, that a lot of them are very good but I just think that Sacha Baron Cohen is maybe because his character is probably the most important I think I would go for him as, as, as best yeah. actor I think sometimes as well it comes down to the screen time and how much, like, you know, Michael Keaton is never going to get nominated for that based on two scenes, even yeah, if he's one of the stronger of actors. Yeah, so I think, I can't remember what it was, I think there's a, a Twitter account or some kind of account somewhere that I've seen where they basically go through all the nominations and they say, okay, this person was on, this person had this many screen, or this, this many lines, or this much screen time, or whatever. Um, and they like, I can't, I'll have to find it um, and send it to you, but uh, that's quite interesting because he breaks down like past uh, past nominations and winners and stuff. But I think in terms of who I th- who I think, um, I agree. I agree that Michael Keaton was very good in the two scenes he was in. Um, Abdul Mateen was was uh, you know if he was given more to do, which obviously is constricted by actual events and so on. But I think if he was given more to do in, uh, in the film, I think he would have been for sure up there as a contender. Um, I would probably go with. Oh, it's a tough one. I think Mark Wylance was very good. Mm-hmm. And I think Sasha Baron Cohen probably was... But they're probably the two for me uh, who I think were the strongest consistency, consistently... I'm going to, uh, I'm going to ask you another question. Yes. I'm, I'm going to ask you completely irrelevant of acting performance. Okay. Who was the main character in this film? Who was the main character? Mm-hmm. If you had to give someone who was the most you, important okay, okay. The main character... Are you saying who is... In okay, this is. I don't know how to word this question. I'm going to give you a question back to before I give my answer. So, are you saying who in this film? Mm-hmm. Who does the so? You, are, you, are you saying who is the protagonist of the film? Is that your question? Yeah, basically, that's, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, um, I would probably say it tries to go with Eddie Redmayne. 90% of the time. Yeah, I agree. I think it's supposed to be the focus. I think we, you're, the audience is supposed to resonate with him more than they actually do as well. Yeah, I think the ensemble kind of doesn't help there though because you kind of expect more from the other people. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know the. I don't know. As I said before, I don't know this. I, I don't actually know about this thing too well. So going into it, I was like, okay, well, this seven Chicago seven, well, well, eight on trial, but obviously the Chicago seven was like the 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 title, and you expect maybe a bit more from from some of the. I mean, especially um, John Carroll Lynch as well, who um, I've recently seen in Zodiac, and. Um, played a very good 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 role in that and turned a very good performance. I think I was kind of wanting more from him as well because like they've got these seven really sort of big name ensemble cast as you mentioned. And the thing with the Eddie Redmayne thing as well is what I will say is they definitely try and push um Eddie Redmayne's character Tom Hayden to be this protagonist. But then at times it just feels like even though he is the predominant protagonist that's pushed throughout the film, it jumps around too much between the other characters within that limited amount for it to for you to really feel like he is actually the main protagonist. Like if they'd have just said, okay, right, Eddie Redmayne is the main focus of the film, and then okay, uh, you know, Sashbrand Cohen is like the one who's supposed to be like his, his sort of almost his opposite, his like adversary, even though they're on trial together, he's supposed to be this kind of um, within the group, he's this kind of uh, at times uh, this opposite figure um, in terms of he challenges uh, Tom Hayden and so on. It, it maybe would have worked better because I feel like it jumped, especially given the fact that the opening scene of the film is this kind of montage where it jumps between all the different characters. Um, you know, with the overlapping um, dialogue, which I thought that scene worked really well, and then it kind of didn't really play out to be the case throughout the film. There, was, there wasn't that consistency where, okay, right, we're going to have a, a focus on... I mean, it's, it'll obviously be hard to have seven characters being the focus of a film, but I think it could have done a better job of managing um, who was the focus, because even though we've both said Eddie Redmayne was the clear protagonist... It never felt like he actually was the protagonist. Like it, it never felt like he took charge or took the lead in terms of like his performance, as you mentioned, for, for me was passable, for you was underwhelming, and I don't know. It just felt like they could have done a bit better of a job of, of managing the ensemble. I think um, obviously this is going to be an issue with a with an ensemble film, as you say, um, and also I think is the biggest issue met with any real life story or biopic or such is is pacing um i think that that is like for example um reviewed schemas a couple weeks ago it's the story that goes with life and i think that what you include and what you don't include is is important and i felt that this film wasn't paced well um i think the the decision to I think the decision to um, not have just to go straight from the, the kind of beginning intro of, of them um, talking about going to Chicago straight to the trial it was good and, and it worked well with the flashbacks. But then I felt there was, I can't remember specific examples to much of a degree, but I felt they spent way too long on certain things and not enough light term on other things. And the main issue I had is with the ending. Uh, I felt that we have, you know, given up two hours of our time to this film to only be told in text a lot of important events, things like um, their verdict, things like the results of their retrial, even if they were given 30 second scenes showing, you know, even if it was after some credits showing they got, a re- they, they got found innocent on the, on the 
retry or, or whatever. I just felt like we have invested so much time and effort to be treated better as as the viewer, to be given more of a kind of cohesive answer. Whereas we spent so long focusing over things that were barely mentioned, like the tapes, um, com- compared to something that was very pivotal in the outcome of the case. And I think almost that was a, a conscious decision, like this is a trial film, this is not about the events, this is not about the verdict, this is about the defence. Yeah. But I felt yeah. like it did. It lacked almost a payoff that, that obviously is going to be an issue with, with a real-life film, but when the, it kind of is a good story in the end, I feel like we should have at least been given a taste of what that could have been. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, literally, just before we mentioned the text credits at the end, I was thinking about whether did I like that, did I not like that, and I was about to say I didn't like it because it felt too cheesy and it felt like... As you mentioned, it felt like they weren't giving his respect to the viewer. But then at the same time, they did the exact same thing at the end of Spotlight, and I kind of liked that because the focus was on the investigation, not the outcome. But I think with this, the reason it didn't work maybe as well is because you spent so much time... Because in Spotlight, you're following the investigation from the investigator's side, and the thing they're investigating is pretty bad. Whereas in this, it's kind of like... You, you sympathise with the characters and we're following the defence. Uh, no, we're following... Yeah, we're following like the, the, the people on trial. So, yeah, I kind of think well, compared it would have been more interesting to, to spend more time with them after. So I'm going to compare this to, to, to Schemers, which is the third time I've mentioned the film Schemers in this podcast. Um, or the first time I've mentioned Schemers. Is that what happens in Schemers is... It builds up to this big point with with the Iron Maiden concert. It then shows the character going off his separate way and his concluding his story of life in in, in yeah. Dundee. And then it has text credits explaining what happens in the years going forward. That's true. Yeah, I think that was a way better way of doing it. You know, it, it's, it's it's this has a film about a trial, and a trial essentially exists to determine a verdict. We've sat through the trial and not been given the verdict. We only find out about the verdict in the text credits. It would have worked a lot better if we were given yeah, the, the trial, the given the verdict, and even if they didn't go I've... into the post-verdict of, of the retrial, that might be okay. But the fact that it gave the key parts and, and, and ending of the film, like the yeah. film wouldn't really have worked without seeing those text credits. Schemers mm-hmm. would have worked without seeing the text credits. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and what I was going to say earlier actually was... Because I didn't know about this event, if I hadn't, if they'd have just shown that the trial, if they'd have just shown the trial verdict on screen and ended it at the trial verdict, or even the retrial verdict, but then not shown, even if they just said, you know, the brief things I mentioned about the characters after after the retrial on text credits, that's fine. But I think, yeah, I I kind of agree with what you're saying actually in terms of, um, yeah, they could have shown. That, but also, what I will say is, is that, um, I mean, this is obviously a different film in in the respect that this is obviously a focus on the trial. But um, I think something like the Social Network, where obviously written by Aaron Sorkin as well, is that is a much more interesting and rewarding way of presenting events for a criminal. Uh, investigation or whatever because we see like the flashbacks are better integrated i felt the flashbacks throughout this were okay but Mm -hmm. kind of felt jarring at times 
and also it kind of felt hard to follow what was when and who was following, like which events were were occurring when. Like there was the moment with the flagpole, um, which I was like, hang on a minute, is it supposed to be before or after the previous events? And um, it sort of took me sort of took me time sometimes to kind of. It didn't feel like it flowed particularly well between those flashbacks and the the trial, um, and and you know and the and the events surrounding the trial. I don't know whether you would agree with, with that or not. Yeah, to, to, certainly to a degree. Uh, in the vein of the flashbacks, I think I want to use this to um, bring up a positive point um, because it sounds, again, it often sounds... There's a lot of films, especially I remember Saving Private Ryan being like this, where it's a very good film that we have specific issues with that stops it from being an excellent film. And then we talk mm-hmm. about those the whole time and not why we thought it was pretty good or very good. And it makes it yeah. sound like we think it's shit. Like we still think The Shining was good, even though we moaned about um, yeah, whatever. But on a positive note, I thought on the in, in a similar vein to the flashbacks, the scenes, the cutaway scenes to Sacha Baron Karen's character, um, Abby Hoffman, um, doing stand-up, you know, um, that was talking nice. about like the that. events, I think it was a great way of showing a kind of almost um, a real person's view, whilst mm-hmm. also making giving it a little bit of a, a breathing room, a little bit of a comedy vibe, allowing us to experience, and a bit of as well. yeah, allow, allowing us to experience the events through through um, through more of a relaxed way, and, and certainly yeah, building up the character of um, of Abby Hoffman and showing uh, you know what Sasha Baron, Car- uh, Baron Cohen's acting abilities uh, are. Uh, and um, and yeah, I think um, it's was, it was very good. In um, I think also you know it makes it establishes honesty to a degree as well. It's like you can trust the things that he's saying to the others because he's saying it in his spare time, um, and makes you think of the implications of what he's going to say in the trial. And I thought that was a very very nice narrative device, and I thought it was uh, yeah, yeah. great for character development and um, and also quite you know quite often quite funny as well. Yeah, and I think that some of the, uh, as I mentioned before, the production design was in, was really good. The acting all around was was I'd say you know pretty solid. Uh, some performances weren't as good as others, but in terms of being ensemble, as you mentioned, it's kind of hard for you know seven or eight um, big names to, to sort of shine. Um, and you know, full credit to the fact that you know I've pulled out two or three that I felt did shine. I think she was a Gordon Lovett as well in a in a role which was kind of interesting. Maybe could have been explored a bit more. Um, but maybe that wasn't the point of the film. But I feel like um, his character was quite interesting uh, from a you know legal, moral, moral, ethical point of view. Um, some of the things he says or does, or um, you know his beliefs, basically how they how they come into play and and have to be subdued and and whatnot because he's uh, pr- prosecuting. And also, just I thought him playing a character which he kind of, as I mentioned, with I forgot which film it was now. Um, which film was it where I mentioned that there was an actor who played oh Kenneth Branagh um, uh, in Tenet and I feel like this was kind of like a similar vibe from from uh, Joe's God Lover in that he's played characters in the past who are generally quite likable um, who are generally you know even if they do bad things you kind of have a bit of a charming nature to them whereas this kind of played up to that I feel like uh, with, his, with his role in terms of you know he's um you know he's been he's been tasked with with uh, prosecuting these people who, you know whether we whether he thinks you know they should be or not it's kind of like his job effectively. I think I think other maybe TV shows and other films in terms of um, lawyers and and the the troublesome nature of you know 
you know, defending and defending someone you know is guilty or, or whatnot. I've done it better, perhaps, but I think that was still an interesting strand of the film, which could have maybe been explored. But obviously, given the the nature of the film and and the runtime and the large cast and and whatnot, and stuff that had to be covered, maybe maybe not. But um, yeah, I think overall. I think I mean as you said, as you mentioned, it's one of those films where maybe we've picked up on negative things and, and talked about them a bit more in more detail. But I think overall acting was was very solid all around. Um, production design was great. I think some of this, as I mentioned earlier, as well, cinematography as well. I think some of the the cinematography definitely was was very much showing off that production value uh, at times, and not not in a not in a negative way at all, in a, in a very positive way. And also, you know, the fact that. Um, there was some really nice symbolic moments. Obviously, the moment uh, where um, I forgot his name, uh, Bobby Seal, um, and you know, there's the empty chair behind him, and there was also some really, as I, I mentioned with the screenplay as well. Like it's, it's. I'm very conflicted on it. There were points where I just cringed almost. Like really, I, I just knew you were gonna say that. Like that's just why, why. And then there's also po- there's also points though where for sure I was definitely. I was like, okay, that is, that is some really interesting dialogue. There was a moment, um, the moment in the park with uh, Sasha Baron Cohen and was Jeremy Strong, and they were talking yeah. to uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, the, the the lawyer, and they said something along the lines of, uh, "Did you get did you get what you wanted from it, or something like that, or did you achieve what you wanted to achieve, or something?" Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically said, "Yeah, but um, they, you know, they did they drew the parallel to the war." Um, you know, the set, and it's also uh, maybe that could have been explored more as well. Obviously, there's a recurring motif throughout about uh, lost lives in the war. And yeah, that's my next point. Actually, I feel I like think... both with um, the Bobby Cell and the like civil rights movement and the other seven characters and the uh, war in Vietnam. I feel like the actual what they're fighting for is sometimes forgotten about in names of yeah. what's a good trial. Obviously, you need to balance both in a trial film, and it's it's realistic. But I'm sh- I feel like the importance especially with eddie redman's character it almost seems like he doesn't particularly care at times uh, and obviously yeah. his real life counterpart it, very clearly did yeah and it was like it was kind of sporadic though it wasn't consistent like if it had been consistent for i would have been fine but it was the fact that at certain points um tom hayden's character was kind of like saying yeah but we need to remember what this is trial is about it's about the people in vietnam and 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 he really pushed that especially in sort of counterance to sasha brown current character and, and a bunch of other characters and then at other times it kind of felt like he just completely neglected that fact, and and it kind of maybe that's why the ending didn't feel as much of a payoff. You know, it had maybe that's kind of what they were going for. I feel like you know, you mentioned the ending, why it ended the way it did, and it had the text credits was because I feel like they wanted that freeze frame, that power moment of the the reading of names and everyone standing up and and clapping and applauding and then paying respect to to the soldiers, which obviously has been has been or is supposed to have been their motive throughout the trial. And yet, as you mentioned, it feels like at times that the characters almost neglect that um, and, and kind of forget about it. And, and it does feel like certain points they've been really, really adamant that this is the trial about those people. And then over times they kind of almost forget about it. And it didn't feel consistent, which is probably why the ending didn't feel as much um, as rewarding uh, as, as perhaps it could have done. 
I did think that the ending itself. I was quite, I personally was. With the, I was annoyed by the um, by the, the text scripts, but I thought the um, the the showing of the uh, solidarity for the soldiers was was quite impressive. And yeah. I, I would say that um, it was a very important subject. I'm happy it was done. I'm very happy this film exists. It, it shared that own issue that I didn't know happened. You know, obviously living in England, there's mm-hmm. less uh, exposure on um, a lot of the the details of, of the Vietnam War and the civil rights as a whole. But um, I thought it was overall. Um, I had didn't have as many issues. I think with the screenplay, I thought that the dialogue was was overall pretty pretty fine, uh, pretty good. Um, but oh, yeah, I thought it was a very tough subject matter that I think they chose a good time to talk about. Obviously, uh, a lot of discussion around uh, civil rights issues right now. Uh, I thought it was um, a lot of it. I just couldn't believe um, was real. Obviously, I'm assuming it was uh, a lot of the 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 judge. You know, his his actions. The stuff was just that was yeah. It was just breathtaking. Um, I guess pardon the pun, but yeah, it was just just unbelievable. You know, shocking the way that they they treated uh, that, that character. And you've got to wonder if it would have been the same if he uh, if he had white skin. Um, and, and a lot of the actions of of the judge um, just consistently throughout the film. You know, he he. We'll ask about who's the protagonist. The the answer of the antagonist certainly isn't Joseph Levin's character. It's certainly the judge, who. Um, you know, if the real counterpart was even half as bad, um, would be a, basically a monster. And um, yeah, I thought that obviously the performance by let me remember his name. His name is oh, I'm not remembering. I'm reading it. Franklin Jella um, was a particularly uh, impressive performance as well. And, and um, again, you know, just hated him so much that you know I feel like if I saw the the act from real life, I'd want to punch him. Um, but yeah, no, I think that maybe. You know, we're 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 picking on the small things that's making it sound worse than than, than we thought it was. But uh, yeah, I think a film that had so much hype, you know, it's bound to get uh, harshly mm-hmm. harshly criticised. Sure, yeah. um, but overall, it's just, it's just, yeah. As I say, overall, I think I probably urge um, between a. I think I give it between a seven and a seven and a half out of ten. Yeah, I would probably go over seven and a half to an eight out of ten. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which doesn't sound like I would give it that, given what I've said. Yeah, I think I, I sounded. Like... I sounded. Kind um less harsh. I think you sounded harsher, but realistically, you probably did enjoy it a little bit more than I did. Um, whereas you know, I I was clearly enjoyed Kajillion Air more than that, and you would not say yeah. the same thing. So yeah, but I think that about pretty much wraps it up. Have you got any parting thoughts on that film? Um, no, no. Uh, one thing I will say, just going forward, is obviously another Netflix film coming out soon. I think in December is uh, David Fincher's new film. Obviously, uh, Aaron Sorkin works with Fincher mm, on Social yes. Network. Uh, Mank, um, which is about the, um, you know, the screenwriter for Citizen Kane, uh, Herman Mankiewicz. I don't know if that's right. But, but yeah, um, it's got a mank in it. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, so that's maybe maybe going to that one. Maybe I should go into that one with a, li- a little less <laughs> expectation. Just manage those expectations a bit. But um, <laughs> just interesting Finch, as well. You're gonna have high expectations. Well, yeah, true. I'm just interested though because I've seen uh, just been having a quick browse of of Manx since uh, since I just thought about that, and screenplay for that film, according to Google, is by Jack Fincher, who is Dave Fincher's yes, father, who daddy. passed away in yes. 2003. Yes, yeah, I did. I did read about this when before he died. He was, I think, quite early in David Fincher's career. He plans to uh, adapt it, and then didn't manage to finish it or didn't manage to get around it and then he died and he kind of ever since he died he was like oh I need to get around to making that film and then now he's going oh, okay. and he's, he's like yeah okay I'm going to make the film in my father's nice. memory like yeah. yeah well I need to uh, I need to watch Citizen Kane still it's been yeah on my me list too for yeah I think we time, might do that we so could do that I as a double feature on the podcast double bill we have to do yeah, that yeah, yeah. Citizen Kane and uh, yeah, in yeah that's, that's pretty much my thoughts on uh, 
It's kind of that same adaptation being John Malkovich vibe of the film about the screenplay. Which I need yeah, to I don't know how much the film focuses on the actual screenplay and how much it focuses on yeah, it's um, on, on just play. him. Because yeah. it is about him during his time finishing the screenplay, I know that much. Mm-hmm. But I don't know whether it's more focused on the character study or whether it's going to be a bit of both or, or what. But, um, we'll yeah, have to see, won't we? Um, and yeah, so next week's will probably be it will uh, be on Pixie because you've already seen that. It will probably be on Borat 2 and perhaps The Honest Thief uh, or just Honest Thief, sorry, not The Honest Thief uh, if, if we get around to doing all three. Um, in the meantime, uh, you can find us, obviously, uh, you can, obviously you would listen to us, but you can find us on iTunes and give us a five-star review as we previously mentioned. You can find us on Twitter now at Now Showing Film. You can check out uh, the, the Music City Driving Network for a range of other great podcasts. You can follow Jordan on Twitter at at by Jordan Luke. You can get him on Letterbox at JL McDonald. You can get me a Letterboxd at Sam Houston, and you can get uh, the podcast on if you want to contact us either through as I previously mentioned the Twitter or mm-hmm. via going through the email, which is now showing pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. We'll do the quiz. Oh shit! <laughs> Are you still recording? Yeah, I'm still recording. Okay, we'll do the um, quiz. Okay, I'm. We've already done the outro. Was, we're gonna do the quiz. Shit, sorry. What we're gonna that. do? We'll have, we'll have to edit this somehow. No, 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 we'll leave it in. Maybe we can just leave it in. We can just leave it in. We'll leave it in. Um, Okay, so, well, the the quiz. Okay, I completely... There's six people still listening to this because everybody else clicked off when I did the outro. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to give you a time limit on this um, because of the time the podcast has been going on for. But this week, your quiz uh, is on... So basically, this is kind of inspired by the fact that when I was looking at the Netflix... um, Twitter account posted a trailer for Trial of Chicago 7 and someone in the comments someone in the replies to the tweet put um oh does this mean I need to catch when Trial of Chicago 1 to 6 <laughs> so and also the news this is the news piece you know if you stuck around some some tasty news <laughs> that we're getting a die hard film next year oh yeah fuck I forgot about that why so, they let like, things die well, yeah, you have to die soft or something. Um, but, but so this the quiz this week. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you two minutes because of the, the time I've been going on for. I'm going to give you a two minute time limit. Uh, you have to name a film franchise, uh, and you're going to have to ascend upwards. So you're starting off with a film with no sequel, and working towards a film franchise with ten films. Oh. And you have to name as many as you can, like a one of each, and you can only go up to the next one. You can pass, but if you pass, you can't go back. Um, so you got two minutes. I'll, I'll tell you when you start. So you, the first thing you got to do is name a film with no sequels. Then the second thing you got to do is name a film with two films in a franchise and so on, so on, so on. Okay. Okay, so you have two minutes. I should give you three minutes. Two minutes, three minutes. Two minutes, two minutes, two minutes. Okay, two minutes starting now. Okay, one film uh, would be Baby Teeth. Okay. Two films would be Blade Runner. Blade, oh, sorry, Blade Runner, Blade Runner 249. Do I have to name both yeah. the films? No, no, just name the the same the franchise. Okay, the... three films would be The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Four films would be The Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Five films would be okay. That's the first hard one. Oh, shit. Um, can you check? Can I? Can you uh, yeah, yeah. Check, can check if yeah. um, Twilight does Twilight have five films? 
Uh, I think that's three that's now four. It has. Oh, no, twi- just, no, twi- has five. Twi- five. Five. Okay. Okay. Six so five. would be Rocky. Yeah. Seven. Now this is when it gets hard. Okay, so I know. I know eight. Wait, six says Rocky's not on the Wikipedia page for six, but I'm going to give it you because I don't know. It's Rocky it's one, two, three, four, five, and then six is Rocky. Oh, Nova. it'd be Creed. We're on it. Creed will count as it, but it's fine. You can have Rocky. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, seven, seven is the hard one. Seven is the hard one. Because I've got eight. I haven't got nine or ten. But You've currently got just under a minute. Oh, I have... Okay, I think I've got nine. I'm just missing seven. So... Terminator does Terminator have seven? Um, no. Does Rambo have? No, Rambo has like five. Um, seven. <gasps> mm, no, no. There's one big franchise. I give you a clue. Tom Cruise. Oh, um, right. You're really giving it away. Mission Impossible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that has a seventh one coming out next year. But I'll give it you. Okay. Go ahead. Eight. Have that. Eight uh, is Harry Potter. Yeah. Nine is currently Fast and Furious. Yeah, I'll accept. 10 is... Oh, we got five seconds. Um, uh, Twilight of Chicago 7. Okay, so so the thing is, Wikipedia is a bit weird because they include, for example, Fantastic Beasts in Harry Potter, but and and uh, I'm assuming they've included Creed in Rocky and so on, which is why yeah. they were a bit a bit off. But uh, with 10, uh, what could you have had with 10? You could have had... See the thing is, some of these. See, the, I don't know how they've done this. I think they've done oh, confirmed. Do we count? I think they've done. I was gonna say don't count. I don't think like I'm um, wasn't counting spin-offs because like if you counted spin-offs, then there'd be more Fast and Furious, and there would have been six. No, no Fast and Furious has has that because the Hobson Shaw is isn't right. Yeah. Oh no, that is that is ten. Fast and Furious. Yeah, is I'm 10. saying I was saying nine because I, I had it as nine. Oh, because I, I wasn't see. Counting so spin-offs. you you already got a tenth one then technically. But then so I have for, a ninth. Yeah. So for ten. For example, I think what they've done on Wikipedia is they've done any confirmed films which have a release date. So DCEU has apparently has ten because they've included Wonder Woman and Suicide Squad, even though they're not out yet. I see. Um, so Wikipedia is a bit funny with the way they've done it. Uh, over nine ones you could have had. You could have had American Pie. Uh, you could have had Children of the Corn, apparently. Dracula. You could have had The Flintstones, apparently. Uh, what else could you have had? There's a bunch of films. Like a lot of, oh, there's actually a bunch of them. Saw Saw has nine. Really, if I went Including for like thirty-three, I could have gone for Carry On. Texas Chainsaw Massacre has nine apparently because oh, really? of an untitled sequel, mm-hmm. which is not out yet. But yeah, I got seventy-five okay. with MCU. I'll give I'll give you that one though. I give you I give you a completed quiz this week because uh, that was a tough one and you did pretty well. On the, I got nine. The time I got nine. That's pretty good. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you ten. I'll give you the ten. No, because I my nine was Fast and Furious. Yeah, but then what would you have said for 10, then? I have no clue. So I'm going to go for the 9. I got 9 out of 10. Okay, go for the 9. Go for the 9. 90%, I'm happy with that. Okay, well, I already did the outro. So um, (laughs) just follow us on Twitter. Now showing showing film on Twitter. See you next time. Thanks, guys. See you later. Thanks. Next week.